around uh, the world today are looking at the same stories, the same narrative of what happened uh, um, almost 2,000 years ago, of Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem uh, the week leading up uh, to his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. So Christians all around the world considering uh, this same story, and uh, we're going to consider it also. So John chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 16. I'm going to invite you all to stand with me. I'm going to read this text. After I read it, I'll say the word of the Lord, and you'll all respond, thanks be to God. Okay? The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it was written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day that you have made. Uh, Lord, we do rejoice, and we are glad in this day, especially as we remember uh, all that you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, for coming for us in the person of Jesus Christ, for living for us, for dying for us, for rising for us. And God, I pray today as we look at your scriptures, I pray you'd open up our eyes uh, to understand more fully your good intentions toward us. God, I pray that our hearts would be tender to you and your word would find uh, fertile uh, ground in our hearts this morning. So do the work that only you can do by your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I'm not sure who here has had uh, an opportunity to be part of a uh, large crowd uh, when a celebrity showed up. Uh, maybe you've had that experience. Maybe it was an athlete um, that you were uh, visiting or, or trying to get their autograph from. Maybe a movie star or a politician. Uh, but I'm sure many of you have had some kind of experience with a famous person in a crowd. I was trying to think of one this week, and the best I could come up with was back when I was in elementary school, I got to uh, meet Kevin McHale. And by the hushed response, <laughs> who here knows who Kevin McHale is? Hey, okay. You know, I, I was kind of a celebrity. Uh, in my day, that was a really big deal, all right? Member of the 86 Boston Celtics World Championship team. And I waited hours to get his autograph. And I remember as he walked into the room, the crowd was buzzing, it's him, it's him. And we eagerly went up and, and got his autograph and shook his massive hand. And it just was a, a great honor to be able to meet Kevin McHale and, and get his autograph. Well, in uh, John chapter 12, uh, here in this story, uh, we read about another large crowd, a much larger crowd. And there was actually, I would say, a similar but a far greater buzz in this crowd uh, about a celebrity. Uh, at this point in Jesus' ministry, about three years in, he had really reached celebrity proportions in Israel. And there was a massive crowd that had gathered in Jerusalem. Um, this was the time of the Jewish feast of the Passover. So pilgrims from all over Israel would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Uh, historians tell us that at this time, uh, uh, Jerusalem was a city of about 50,000 people. So much smaller um, then than it is today. Uh, but still, in that day, a pretty big city. 
but at the time of the feast, it would double, if not triple, in size. So you can imagine what it was like to be part of a, a town, a city, that doubled or tripled in size you know, for a period of about a week. Just imagine if Dover all of a sudden doubled in population. You know, the restaurants would be bursting. You know, traffic would be a nightmare. Well, I guess it kind of is a Main Street right now, but <laughs> more than normal. Um, you know, you just would have an energy, a buzz around, because all the people are, are pressed in around you. And that's what's happening in Jerusalem. There's all kinds of people that have come in, and they're in a festive spirit, excited for the feast of the Passover, but there's more than just that festival that's going on in their minds. Uh, Jesus has become national news. Uh, at this point, people are talking about him, like at dinner gatherings. They're, they're talking about him uh, when they're walking in the streets together. Uh, he, he's, just, he's the name on everybody's lips because of all that he's been doing. They're saying, have you heard about the, the man you know, who's been healing people, uh, people who are blind, who can't walk, who are deaf. People are, are just talking about his miracles. Uh, they're talking about his teaching. Have you heard the things he's been saying about the kingdom of God coming, the kingdom of God being at hand? What does this all mean for us? Uh, and right now, what they are most likely talking the most about is what had happened the day prior. Uh, just the day prior, uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And that happened just um, not far from Jerusalem. So news had quickly traveled about a resurrection from the dead. Uh, you can only imagine the stir this caused. So people are talking about Jesus, and they hear that he's coming to Jerusalem. And so what happens is, is the crowd be, goes outside of the city. They're so excited, they're not just waiting for him. They run outside the city, they cut off palm branches from trees, and they run out with these palm branches yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, now at that time, it was quite common for uh, crowds from a city to come out and greet a king who was returning victoriously from battle. That's the image here, of citizens from a city coming out to greet their victorious king. And that's exactly what these people have in mind. They are viewing Jesus as their king. That's their desire. They're coming out and they're, they're greeting him, looking to receive him as king of Israel. Now, Jesus was the king that the prophets had foretold. Now, the Zechariah prophecy that had been read earlier uh, in the uh, service today uh, foretold just this thing, that a promised king would come riding on a donkey. And so this is a very vivid and engaging story, picturing Jesus coming to this crowd who's cheering him on. So ex the excitement is just building. I mean, you're, you're thinking about uh, almost a, uh, a Super Bowl parade and an inauguration celebration all thrown in together. Now, that's the scene there in Jerusalem. So as we consider this scene today, I want us to, one, consider the historical events that took place. This was the beginning of the week that led to Jesus' death and then resurrection. It's significant to really think about what took place as a historical event. But more than just thinking about the history of this, I want us to consider this question today, and that is, what do we learn about humanity from this event? What do we learn about people, you and I, from this event that took place almost 2,000 years ago. Because as we look at this event, we get a glimpse into the human situation and the human heart, all right? So what do we learn about the human heart from this narrative? First, 
uh, I think we learned that we all long for a true king who will truly save. Humanity longs for a true king who will truly save. Uh, the words that the crowds cried as they ran out to Jesus were the words, Hosanna. And we sung them today, Hosanna. Um, it sounds like a, a word you might hear at church. It sounds like one of those religious words. Um, but it wasn't just a religious word to those people. Now, what Hosanna means is save us, uh, deliver us now. And so they're running out, crying out for deliverance, for rescue, for salvation um, from all of the ills that plagued them. Um, there, has, there was a lot of suffering ongoing in Israel at this time. Uh, Israel was occupied uh, by the Roman government. And when you look at the history of Israel, they have faced a lot of oppression uh, in their time. Um, throughout their history, they had been enslaved by the Egyptians, uh, oppressed by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. Uh, they are very used to this cry, save us. And so they are crying out to Jesus for deliverance from their oppression from the occupying Roman government. And their hopes for salvation, Hosanna, save us, their hopes for deliverance were becoming focused on the person of Jesus. They were interpreting him as the one who could rescue them, save them from the occupying Roman force of the day. Now, this longing uh, for a king who can truly save was not unique to the people of Israel 2,000 years ago. I think there's a universal awareness that humanity has that things are not as they should be in life. We just have this sense, and I, I've never heard anybody say that our world is as it should be. You know, we have different things we focus on, but we all know that, that, we, we, that we shouldn't live in a world where war is rampant, where crime is prolific, where sickness and death are regular occurrences. These just feel wrong to us. And we're right about that. This was not the world we were created to live in. Something has gone wrong. And so we all long for these ills to be addressed and then turned upside down. And we quite often focus our desires for this world to be fixed on people who claim to have a solution. Um, every election cycle, this longing gets tapped into as a political leader offers solutions to the problems of our day. And what's amazing is, as we go through an election cycle every four years, it, it, it's, it's the religious fervor that develops during the process. You know, we don't just calmly weigh out the options. You know, what are the different political ideologies out there? I mean, what are the character of the candidates? Okay, let's kind of choose what's best. There becomes a religious fervor, doesn't there? I mean, the conversations are not light. <laughs> They're very heavy, because there's more going on than just us weighing out pros and cons of ideologies. We're tapping into a much deeper longing, because we want things to be right. And that's a good longing. That's a good longing. But it's not just in our election cycles that we see this longing emerge. I think we see it all throughout our stories that entertain us. Um, old stories like King Arthur, um, 
somewhat more recent tellings or, or uh, stories like the Lord of the Rings, they all have these storylines built in about once the king is in place, things will be as they should be in the kingdom. Something about that story resonates with us. I even think the American fascination with British royalty taps into this. Just this sense of still a longing for a king, though we don't live in that kind of government, governmental situation. Deep within the soul of every single person lies this longing for a good ruler who can truly save. And that longing's there because God has put it there. Uh, Psalm uh, chapter 95, verses 3 and 6, uh, points us to this reality where the psalmist writes, For the Lord is a great God, and listen, a great king above all gods. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. Every political rally, every red carpet awards show, every victory parade whispers this invitation. Come, come and celebrate. Come and celebrate a wonderful celebrity. Come adore a hero. Come and worship a person who can deliver you, if even only for a couple hours. The crowd's response to Jesus entering Jerusalem that day and our responses to rulers of our day reveal the longings of the human heart where we want a true king who can truly save. That's not all that this story tells us, though, about humanity. Yes, it tells us that we all long for a true king who can truly save, but it also reveals that we all have our own salvation plans for the true king. Uh, we, all have all, we all have our own ideas of what deliverance really looks like. Uh, let's consider the uh, palm branches that the people cut off uh, from the trees. I've got a palm branch right here. Uh, Grace Cooper informed me this week that the, uh, the tree I have in my office is not a palm tree because it does not have these branches, so I believe her. Uh, this is a, uh, a palm branch, and this is what people were waving that day as Jesus came in. Um, a little later in the service, after the sermon ends, the kids are going to come down, and they're all going to get one of these, and they're going to march around the aisles up and down as we sing a song. And it's a really great tradition. It's a fun tradition. It, it's cute to see these kids walking, waving their palms, probably some of them nervously uh, waving, maybe some trying to whack the kid in front of them, others trying to catch their parents' eye. It's, it's a really cute scene. And the danger in that is that we end up sanitizing the original meaning of these palm branches. Because the original meaning was not so cute. Uh, what these represent is something that had taken place 150 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem that day. Uh, 150 years prior to that day, there was a Jewish leader named Judas Maccabeus, and he led a revolt against the Gentile rulers of, of Israel at that time, who had been oppressing the Jews and desecrating the temple. And so Judas Maccabeus led a revolt that recaptured the temple and recaptured the city. And in their victory celebration, they waved palm branches. And after that, the palm branch became a symbol of resistance and revolt against the occupying governments. Um, the Hunger Games uh, kind of tells us a little bit of a similar story. It was a story of an oppressed people who were longing for deliverance, longing for a, a leader to arise, 
who would take uh, down the occupying enemy and deliver the people of the districts. And a revolt did happen in that story uh, under the unwitting influence of a woman named Katniss Everdeen. Uh, does anybody remember the symbol for the revolt under Katniss? The Mockingjay, oh, look at that, well done. <laughs> the Mockingjay and the Whistle, I like that. Uh, the Mockingjay, a very kind of innocuous symbol, humble symbol, yet it meant something. It meant resistance, it meant revolt. And that's kind of what this meant to the people of Israel in that day. Uh, maybe another example, more uh, closer to home for us. Uh, anybody here know what the Gadsden flag is? I'm sure you'll know once I show it to you in a minute here. Uh, it's named for an American general named Christopher Gadsden. He designed it back in 1775 uh, during the American Revolution. And the Continental Marines used it as a motto flag. Well, let's see the flag here. There it is. Anybody seen that flag? Yes. Um, it was a symbol of resistance, still used today by people that say, listen, you know, we don't want government oppressing us. You know, we want freedom, liberty. Now just imagine if our kids walked down today with those flags marching around. I'm guessing there'd be a slightly different tenor uh, in the room. Some probably would think, oh, this is great. Others might be not so sure about that symbol. And that's exactly what was happening back then. Some people were saying, this is great. Uh, let's get Rome out of here. We're, we're loving this sense of resistance. Others are a little bit nervous. What's this going to mean? I'm not so sure I, I like this. It was a political statement of resistance. And by waving these branches, the crowd was revealing their salvation plans for Jesus. They wanted Jesus to lead a revolt. Right then, right there. And it's not a bad desire. I mean, Rome wasn't good. <laughs> It would be better if Israel could be free from Roman oppression. But that wasn't the deliverance Jesus had in mind. Jesus had a different plan for deliverance. The crowd was focused on the problem of Rome. Jesus was focused on the problem of human sin. Their salvation plans for him were not his salvation plans for them. And it wasn't just the people of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that had their own salvation plans for Jesus. It's us too. Every generation tends to do this, to bring our own expectations for deliverance and put them on Jesus. Some of those expectations are political, like it was for the uh, Israelites in Jerusalem. You know, many of the people in Jesus' day wanted a political savior. And it's so easy, isn't it? to get sucked into putting more energy and emotion into the political problems of our day than into the deliverance that Jesus is offering each of us. I mean, the headlines come at us so regularly. It's so easy to get wrapped up in thinking that the real problem to address is either the other party or a particular issue, and we just find ourselves wrapped up, sucked in to the political problems of our day. And few Christians would actually... Uh, say out loud or consciously even think that our real desire is for a political leader to save us. But the amount of uh, energy, thought, and emotion that we put into the political process reveals where our trust really lies. And what's been revealed in the last couple of election cycles is that we're often still waving palm branches, looking for a political savior 
right now. It's not just politics, though, that reveal this. I mean, we want financial saviors, right? And for so many of us, finances sure, sure seem to be like the path to deliverance. If I could have a little more money, man, life would be a lot better. My problems would, would kind of go away if I had a, a little more money in my bank account. Or if this relationship was fixed, things would be a lot better. And we tend to look to politics, finances, relational avenues as being the real things that need to get addressed if life is to be fixed. So one of the questions for all of us as we read this story is, what palm branch are you waving right now? What's the palm branch in your life that you want Jesus to deliver you from, to fix, to address? What problem other than your own weary, troubled, sinful heart do you want Jesus to deliver you from? Mercifully, Jesus did not fulfill the crowd's expectation. Just imagine if he did. Imagine if he had led a revolt that day. He would have been trading in an ultimate deliverance for a temporary deliverance. And mercifully, Jesus does not deliver us all the time in the way that we ask. He's always leading us to a deeper deliverance. This is the third thing we see in this story is that we have a king who comes to meet our deepest need even before we ask. We have a king who comes to meet our deepest need even before we ask. You know, Jesus had planned to enter Jerusalem on a donkey long before the crowds ever ran out of the city to him, long before they cut down palm branches, long before they started shouting Hosanna. God had already planned to come to his people, to deliver them. You know, the words that we read uh, in verse 15 of John 12, they were quoted from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Hundreds of years before Jesus, the prophets foretold this, where it said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's amazing, hundreds of years before Jesus, exactly how he would come into Jerusalem was foretold. That God's letting us know this has been his plan from eternity past. That he has planned to save us in this way. And he doesn't wait for us to cry out to him for deliverance before he begins his rescue operation. He doesn't wait until we get all our desires in order or until we're good enough. Uh, he has planned to come and to deliver us from eternity past, and He has come in the person of Jesus to do this. And He continues to come by the Holy Spirit in our lives. God is at work. He's coming to us to bring us the deliverance, the salvation that He knows we need even if we don't know we need it. God's coming to us before we even ask. I love this quote uh, from an author named Simon Tugwell. Uh, he says, uh, So long as we imagine it is we who have to look for God, we must often lose heart. But it's the other way around. He is looking for us. Our desires for God are so weak. They're so fickle. Some weeks we are very uh, ardent in our faith and wanting to pursue God. Other weeks, not at all. 
And so if, if our relationship with God was dependent on the strength of our faith, we're in trouble. But God has come for us. God is the one who initiates with us. He is the one who is the author, the perfecter of our faith. We have to realize this about God and his plans for our deliverance. And we have to realize this because so often we're not sure what God's up to. You know, we're praying out prayers for deliverance and God doesn't seem to come through. And we wonder, what is he doing? Is God good? Does he care? Is he there? But what we need to know is that this is not the case. He does love us more than we can ever comprehend. And he has come for us. And he is still coming to meet our greatest need and to deliver us from our greatest enemy. We must remind ourselves of this often. Jesus came on a donkey into Jerusalem. God's plan to save us, to walk a journey to the cross, to rise from the dead, to ascend to heaven, to send his Holy Spirit, and to one day come again. And we find ourselves in this story our greatest enemies are addressed. I want to finish with uh, one final question. It's a simple question. And the question is, so what? So what? Uh, what difference does it really make in our day-to-day life that Jesus entered Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on a donkey? Uh, what real relevance can that story way back then have in our lives today in the, in the ebb and flow of parenting, the ebb and flow of going to work, of uh, hobbies, what difference does this really make? I want to consider the words to Zechariah's prophecy about the true king's coming that were quoted in John 12, verse 15. Um, These were Zechariah's words that are quoted, where it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I want to consider two phrases from this uh, passage. First is is the phrase at the beginning, fear not. Fear not. This is a phrase that's often repeated in the scriptures. It's actually the most frequent command in the scriptures. And what does that tell us about humanity? That's the most frequent command. Probably tells us we've got a lot to be afraid of that we are afraid a lot. Whether we know it or not, fear is just kind of the air we breathe. You know, we're, we're afraid of not having enough money, afraid of injury, of sickness, of dying, of embarrassment, of shame, of being unwanted or alone, or being laughed at, or being ignored, or being disrespected. There's a lot that we find ourselves afraid of. But fear isn't just the result of those things in and of themselves. Fear is the result of having something or someone other than God in charge of our lives. I'll say that again. Fear is the result of having something or someone other than God in functional control of our lives. Now, something or someone is going to be in control of our lives. We can't live without a ruler. Whether it is a quest to have enough money, whether it is to get a romantic relationship or others' approval or substances. I mean, something is going to have functional control in our lives. And the problem with any other ruler other than Jesus is they will all let you down. No other ruler can fully deliver. Let's just consider money. 
If money is our ruler, if we, if we think, I need to have enough money to be secure, to be happy. I mean, money sure seems like it can buy the things that make us happy, right? It, it seems to work, because it does for a while. But money is not certain. And the economy changes, doesn't it? We lose jobs. Um, money uh, is not certain. And even those that seem to have more money than they could ever fully use really aren't that happy. I mean, all the stories of lottery winners and celebrities whose lives are a train wreck. And we realize, wait a minute, maybe money as ruler isn't such a good idea. Money actually then becomes to enslave us. It makes us grip tightly to what we shouldn't be gripping tightly to. It makes us at times less loving towards others. Uh, that's why the scriptures say the love of money is the root of all evil. If money is our functional ruler, it does not deliver it enslaves. And we could run down a list of all the other things that we look to to functionally rule our lives, and every one of them falls short of the deliverance that Jesus and only Jesus can offer. See, Jesus and only Jesus can address our deepest need. Jesus and only Jesus has the power to actually save. I, I mean, every other human ruler, be it a king, a general, or a president, every other ruler has died and gone to a grave or will die and go to a grave and remain there. Jesus has not. We're going to celebrate next Sunday that the grave is empty, that Jesus went into the grave for us and came out of the grave for us, conquering Satan's sin and death. In Jesus is the power that can truly deliver us. Now, when we realize who Jesus really is and his power to deliver, the natural question is, well, how can I have that? Uh, how can I receive this king into my life so that I can cease from fear? I can fear not. The second phrase I want us to consider in this uh, verse is the phrase, behold your king. It says, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, to behold something is to look intently at. You know, you're not just looking uh, quickly, glancing. To behold is to stare, to focus, uh, to really look deeply at something. And the prophet is saying, look deeply at your king. Gaze, focus on your king. And it's not just saying this in a general way. There's something in particular the prophet wants us to behold about our coming king. It was, behold your king sitting on a donkey. Behold your king sitting on a donkey. See, most conquering kings entered the capital city on the largest, most powerful horse they could find. Now, they want to project strength. They want to project importance and victory. They want to flex their might after crushing their enemies. Most rulers today follow a sim similar strategy. Project strength, flex muscle, show you're powerful. That's how you can get people to follow you. Yet the true king of the universe rode into Jerusalem not on a mighty horse, but on a humble donkey. Because he was planning to save his people not by flexing his might, not by crushing his enemies, but by being crushed for his enemies. The true king is a humble servant. 
The lion of the tribe of Judah is the lamb who would be slain. See, the true enemies of God back then and the true enemies of God today are not the Romans or any other national or political group. The true enemy of God and his people is the sin that lies in the heart of every single member of humanity. See, we all have hearts that distrust God. We just do, all of us. From the most irreligious to the most religious, we all have ways in which we doubt God's goodness. And then we try to uh, arrange life to work for us, writing our own definitions of what is right and what is good. And if the human heart is not delivered from that condition, that condition of doubting God and trying to decide for ourselves what is right and good, then we will continue in fear, regardless of political leaders in office, regardless of the amount of money we have, regardless of the people around us. Unless that heart condition is addressed and we are delivered from it, we will continue in fear. Sinful souls cannot be conquered by might. They must be overcome by love. And that's what our king has done. He has come. He's ridden a humble donkey into the city because he was intending then to carry a cross out of the city. And upon that cross, he takes upon himself all of our sin. He demonstrates, the scriptures say, he demonstrates his love for us. That while we were still sinners, while we're still opposed to him, still doubting his goodness, still trying to define right for ourselves, in that condition, Christ went to the cross for us. And when we truly see that, see Jesus dying for us when we're at our worst, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are secure in his love. And when we're secure in his love, everything else can come at us, but we have what is most important. God's love for us is the one thing that matters for all eternity. If we have God's love, we can be safe and secure regardless what happens to us in life. Jesus comes to us on a donkey because he is the humble king who has come to deliver us in the only way that our souls can truly be delivered, by the love of God. So I invite you today and this week to truly behold Jesus, to look at him, to gaze intently, to stare at him, walking this journey, entering on a donkey, heading into the city, looking over the city, and he cries out, oh, oh, that I was uh, like a mother hen, could gather you uh, under my wings, but you're unwilling. His deep desire to gather us. Watch him this week as he washes his disciples' feet, knowing that one of them would betray him. Watch him as he, as he serves communion, the Last Supper. Tells us, this is my body, it's going to be broken for you, my, my blood shed for you, that the new covenant would be enacted. Watch him journeying up the hill, laboring under the cross. Watch him crucified for you, for me. And the next Sunday, we watch the tomb, the stone rolled away, and the tomb is empty. When we behold Jesus and what he has done for us, then and only then are we truly delivered. Now for some of you, this may be an invitation to put your trust in Christ this week for the first time. That you realize I may have been religious in some ways, but I've never really beheld Jesus and looked at him as the only one that can deliver me from the problem of my sin. 
The good news is the Bible says that all who turn to Jesus, confess their sin and put their trust in him, are delivered. That we are saved by the work of Jesus, not by the goodness of our own effort. And I invite you this week to look to Jesus in faith and put your trust in him. For others of you here, um, you may have beheld Jesus in this way before, as your king who has come to save you from your sin. But you may wonder, why do I still have fear? Well, Jesus' deliverance, in some ways, it's like a a two-step process, where to put our trust in him, we do become citizens in his kingdom. We can be guaranteed that when we put our trust in Jesus, we are part of his kingdom forever. That citizenship is not revoked. Yet, we are also becoming like him. This deliverance is also ongoing. And God is going to be working throughout the circumstances of our lives, working out an ongoing deliverance so that we are learning to become like him and to trust him more. So in some ways, the invitation is the same for you, that this week, behold Jesus. Behold him and what he has done for you. And as you look at Jesus and his actions on your behalf, what you'll find is is you grow to trust him more. This is a lifelong journey of growing in trust in the king who has come to deliver us. We all long for a true king who can truly save. And that true king has come. He lived, he died, he rose, he's coming again. Let's behold him this week. Just stand with me. We'll close in prayer and a song as the kids come down, all right? Lord Jesus, how thankful we are uh, that you are the true king uh, that our hearts long for. Thank you, Lord, for not waiting uh, for our invitation for you to come, but for coming before we even recognized our need. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for continuing to come today by your Holy Spirit, drawing us to yourself. God, I do pray this week, God, I pray that you would help our hearts to be tender to you, help us to recognize what our true need is, uh, help us to see the problem of our sin that you have fully addressed in your cross. And God, I pray that this week you continue to give us eyes to see you and for what you've accomplished, that Lord, not only did you enter the city, uh, Lord, on a donkey, uh, but Lord, you walked out of the city carrying your cross. And on that cross, Lord, you died in taking our sin, all of humanity's sin, upon yourself on that cross. And you rose victorious, never to die again. Lord, we know that if our trust is in you, that's our future too. So God, I pray this week you would fill us with confidence uh, that your death and your resurrection truly can bring. So God, this week, we pray that you would be honored. This week, I pray you'd prepare our hearts to worship. Uh, And Lord, this week, I pray you'd be calling many uh, to faith in Jesus Christ who are maybe in this congregation or even outside this congregation, Lord. Lord, fix our eyes on you as our author and perfecter of our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.